From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. And today we have a very rare treat. All three of us are together in one room. Even better, we're here in beautiful, sunny California. With me, as always, is Imogen Rose Smith, an investment fellow with the University of California. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. It's good to actually see you in, in one, in one in, space. In, I know, it's exciting. And with us also, in between us, is David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha. Hi, David. Hey, Brian. Hi, Imogen. Welcome to California. Thank, uh, thank you. you for having us, and thanks for hosting us here in this on this beautiful day in California. So, and being here with both of you uh, on a beautiful day has me dreaming. California I'm, dreaming. <laughs> I'm not singing today. <laughs> uh, and so, so you know, this is a, this is a state that has attracted ambitious people hoping to chart their own path for centuries, right? And it's it's a land of opportunity, a land of potential, a land of promise. A lot of energy coming out of California right now. California is huge. If it were its own country, uh, it would have the sixth largest uh, economy in the world with 2.4 trillion dollars in the GDP. Uh, that'd be ahead of France and India. And with all this wealth and all this dynamism, it's led to a hotbed of innovation, uh, and that's includes an impact investing. So, David, as our resident California sunny optimist, what is it about the California model that makes you hopeful for a sustainable and inclusive future? Well, you know, so I do get typecast on this podcast as the as the blue sky utopian, and I was trying to think. Well, maybe it's like you know, is it in the water or something? Like in California, it's just kind of an article of faith that immigration is a positive, not a negative, that diversity is a positive, not a negative, that climate action is a positive, ne not a negative. California's got the most, I, th I think it's the most, maybe one of the most aggressive decarbonization policies going in the country, both on electric vehicles, on power plant emissions. Um, there's a cap and trade market that after a little bit of a uh, rocky start is actually up and, and running. Um, and so a lot of the things that impact investing writ large is kind of trying to get done or that are sort of articles of faith in impact investing are also articles of faith in California. So I think that may be why I can see that there is a future that, you know, that works. Now, it's, it's not just because of the policies and the progressive politics, but it's also because of the money here. And California, Imogen, is home to the two of the largest pension funds in the, in the country, and certainly in the country and probably if not in the world, CalPERS, which manages over $350 billion in order to pay out the retirement funds for 1.9 million state employees, and then CalSTRS, which is the teacher's pension fund of California, and that has $230 billion on behalf of uh, over 900,000 uh, public school teachers here. So that's a combined $580 billion in assets under management that have long-term exposures and long-term liabilities to ensure that they have enough money to pay out to these retired public uh, workers well into the future. So that is a huge opportunity, and that's been a huge uh, mandate from this state uh, to put that money to work in a long-term, sustainable-oriented uh, dimension. Is that, is that fair? <laughs> well, first of all, you forgot the University of California. We also have a large $60 billion-plus defined benefit pension plan and other assets that we manage. Um, it's interesting, right? It's true that PERS and STRS have a mandate to invest sustainably more so than is traditional, one thinks of traditionally for US pension plans. So they have long had a history of thinking about issues such as climate change. 
Um, and why is that? Is that because they're ma because they're managed by boards of directors that are it's, essentially accountable to their yeah, I mean, pensioners? If you want my no, <laughs> <laughs> if you want my, it, it's frankly yeah, yes and no. It, it's because the. Yeah, this actually is not unique to California. You see it in New York and some other places as well. It's because of politics, right? That they are managed by boards of directors who are, for the most part, political and union appointees. And these appointees and their, their, their stakeholders come with certain views. And so that tends to favor progressive politics. It tends to favor things such as diversity policies and thinking about climate change and investing strategies and stuff like that. I mean, you're actually seeing a big wave of that happen in New York now. Both New York City and New York Common kind of ramped up their divestment strategies within the last couple of months. I We're think not talking that, about New York. You and no. I are both New Yorkers. Well, We're here in California. Is that, We're talking like, about California. My point is, is it's, it's, it, that is not exclusive to California. It's exclusive to... A, but but the view... The problem, I think the problem is, is that the view is, is that it's exclusive to a specific political agenda. And... That has not necessarily helped the sustainable and impact investment movement because it makes it about politics and po And this is one of the reasons why the sort of modern portfolio theory folks of the world, the endowment investments out there say, no, this has got nothing to do with investing because they see it as policy. And actually, Purs and Sturs had a very rocky start in their, particularly their clean energy investing. So there, there was a mandate that was implemented in 2002 that said CalPERS and CalSTRS have to invest in clean energy. I think it was like, I'm going to call it $2 billion that they had to invest, which is nothing compared to the size of the funds, but it's a big investment. And this was in the first wave of clean tech, and they lost a ton of money. And they've been really resistant to get into the clean tech space in particular since that. And so that's actually a really, really good example to, to completely undermine David's point. It's a really good example of like policy failing, right? That when it's a policy mandate, and the timing doesn't work, you can actually have negative ramifications. Whereas, you know, so, so the UC is actually much more open and much more willing to, in particular, look at things like clean tech investments and innovation, because we, we come at it from a bottoms up, hey, we're in Silicon Valley, this is something we think we want to be a part of, as opposed to having it mandated on us from a regulatory standpoint. So, so you think that when uh, inclusive and sustainable investment uh, drivers come from an investment thesis, that, that when, when it's the investment uh, uh, managers are saying that we think that this is best for our long-term financial returns, taking this lens, uh, that, that you'll have uh, greater success and greater investment performance than if it was mandated by regulators or politicians. Exactly. So and that's what that's what Jagdeep our CIO would tell you, which is that it needs to come from the culture. It needs to come more from the bottom up than from the top down. I think that's absolutely true and it absolutely does. And you know, it's you it's funny, Brian, you started out with you know, saying the, the money is here in California and you went to the pension funds. That's not, I think, what people think of when they think of the money in California. They think of the billionaires in Silicon Valley and Hollywood and, and all the riches that have been made here in business and why does California have this ability to spin out companies, the Facebooks, the Googles, um, the Teslas, uh, you know, all of the Hollywood studios, et cetera? Why does California keep popping up these global companies that are leaders? Because, but that's because you had an infrastructure and a support, right? It's actually, I mean, it's the University of California. It's a public university, right? Absolutely. There is 
federal and state funding that went into the, the technological revolution that basically spawned the Silicon Valley was funded a lot by government, right? So there was a belief that sort of one, that these things go in sync and one equals the other. And obviously, you know, as a country, we have lost that. And the, the challenge for California and, you know, the pension funds are part of this and the pension deficit is a huge part of this is, can it keep doing that? Can it sustain that? I do agree with you that there is a feeling of optimism that is very, like I like California, despite being our resident Camacho. Everybody, so. everybody who 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 disses California d does take every business trip opportunity that they can to come out here. I will I, say that. I, I will I, say I love I, I, do, I, I love visiting California. Yeah, exactly. And living in New York. That that is that is my view as well. But but that that sense of optimism and the sense of the that stuff can happen, I think, is very very Californian. But I think that as well under its current iteration, the sort of Silicon Valley as we think of it, it's kind of got misguided. That it's become all about sort of the, you know, the Peter Thiel type individual and less about the broader social benefit. And I think something has gotten lost and impact in some ways tries to bridge the gap back, but it's playing, it's so small relative to these massive fortunes that are being made. Well, I do, I mean, I, I, I agree with that and I will say, you know, I, I'm actually a product of that public investment in California. I'm a, you know, went to public school schools all through California. Went to the University of California, it's at Santa Cruz. You know, I'm a I'm a California public school guy that was a, a beneficiary of that very big public investment. But we did hit a big hiccup in the last two or three decades where that public investment went away, and uh, we suffered. You know massive budget cuts, lots of, you know, re recessions, you know, booms and busts, all kinds of things. And what's interesting now is having come out of that um, in the last four or five years, six or seven years maybe, with with policies that are possibly applicable to the rest of the country, which has also gone through those hard times. So, for example, we passed a, a, a and the voters passed this, a, a tax on millionaires, basically. Voters have passed a redistricting proposal that took took it out of the hands of the politicians so that there'd be more, you know, lots of things where we found that there had been mistakes made and then voters and politicians at some level, but in particular voters, decided they're going to correct those mistakes. So that's that's an interesting phenomenon as well. But isn't the, the, the proposition model, which is really what you're talking about, where voters vote on individual propositions, right? Like, hasn't that also led to, like, really negative consequences as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Democracy, you know, cuts in all directions. I'm just, I'm saying, and, you know, maybe there's more, you know, chapters yet to be written. But, but is, Cal is California a view from the future? Is, is this, or is, is this just something for the coastal elites uh, that, that's not going to resonate with uh, the, the rest of the country? I mean, what, what, are you, what are you saying here? What, what are the factors that allowed California to have... Uh, a, a resurgence of its uh, policies and public investments and uh, progressive taxations and, and looking at a growth economy and all those other drivers. What what has influenced that? What's what, what's caused that? I mean, you know, there's you know tomes and books written about why you know California has had this kind of you know chemistry for for a long time. It has to do with facing the Pacific and Asia. It has to do with you know the frontier. It has to do with all that stuff. But it also has to do with looking into where the future is going. So you can you can delegitimize California and say, oh, that's just a bunch of, you know, 
I don't know what the stoner hippies, what the, <laughs> whatever, pick your stereotype, and that that's not applicable in the rest of the country. But you'll find actually, we're, on Impact Alpha, we're doing a series which we call the New Revivalists. You're finding kind of germs of California, so to speak, happening in lots of places where there are now, you know, entrepreneurial ecosystems and you know this startup culture, which kind of you know is sort of ground zero around here. But now you know that is a legitimate occupation or career path now for people in, in, you know, around the country. And people are understanding, oh, you need to have the universities involved. You need to have public policies. You need to have job training. You need to have revolving funds. You need to have, you know, pop-up retail and co-working spaces. You need all these things that California sort of got, you know, a decade or so ago are now sort of spreading so around. If, if California has already exported its cool and its tech and its movies, it's now exporting its ecosystem model, or that's what others are trying to replicate? I mean, everybody wants to be, you know, the Silicon Valley of some so someplace. So from Silicon Valley to Silicon Alley to Silicon Prairie to, Because it know, worked out those. great in the 2000s. Like, I, I do buy the thesis there's our resident curmudgeon. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big believer. In Go back to New York. You Imogen. can take the girl out of New York, but um, I'm a big, yeah. I'm actually a big believer in this. This, this focus on second and third tier, third tier cities, and what is it that we need to spur innovation and job creation, and what role can technology play in that, and how that has transformed technology and, importantly, manufacturing actually. How like how that trans has the potential to transform economies, but you know I think this focus on innovation hubs and tech startups and all that is screaming bubble economy, right? This feels like we are at a high point, and when this thing bursts, like you know all those shared workspaces are going to be empty husks. Well, I, I mean. Yes, but also California now is pioneering the next stage, which is not just, you know, unicorn, you know, go to the moon, you know, app startup digital dot com again. It's actually, you know, real businesses with real revenues serving real people, meeting real could, needs. You could say that like that's a rounding error compared to, I mean, again, sort of the, the, the Silicon Valley model has contributed to some of the most the most significant income inequality that we have, right? I mean, the sort of, you know, what do you want to call it? Like, like the Uber kind of shared economy model is like ultimately going to drive out of business everyone except robots and a handful of billionaires who are going to escape to New Zealand and like, you know. Now, now, like, we're, now we're getting somewhere. I think that is, I think you've put your finger on it. I mean, we're sitting here in Oakland, which I think is like the most unequalizing city in the country by some statistics and you know the displacement of residents and local businesses here and in other parts of California is uh, you know impending if not you know already arrived you know crisis of massive proportions so that's the next so how challenge does, how does California to be so I guess how does California export its positive narrative and not its no negative narrative I mean it's, it's a it's, it's this amazing juxtaposition that these two things exist together and they clearly it's not a coincidence yeah so is the future the the bright eyes optimism of the uh tech utopian future that california presents or is it the 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 bleary you know dystopian uh bleak uh you know wealth inequality housing crisis you know uh, Wait, those are natural our, disaster those are our only two choices 
Well, I think, it, I think I the argument like, is that somehow, some, somewhere along the way, like at the beginning, like venture capital was meant to have a social component to it as well. But it was meant to be a broader good. And somewhere along the way, that idea got lost and it just became about benefiting the very few, potentially at the cost of the man, the many, and so there wait, is. Wait, and when, maybe, when was venture capital supposed to have? Apparently, a back in the beginning, like in the seventies, when it when it when legislative changes encouraged capital to move into VC, the idea was that there was a, there was a broader social mission to it. Well, wouldn't the broader social mission be the, uh, the creating new businesses and yes. new startups? And the, so, the, the, but the idea that there was a, there was a broader social good. It's not just benefiting the one. It was benefited that there were multi, it was benefiting the many, and that has gotten it. And maybe the sort of the the bright eyed optimism obfuscated the fact that actually what was being created in part was a system that was deeply socially destructive, and in some ways has resulted in the need for counteractive forces such as impact investing to figure out what do we do about some of these massive well, problems? Well, that's where I was going to go, is that that's what impact investing can bring to California, because what was really needed now is the counterweight to that um, uh, uh, stratifying force, and it's, a, and it's a, what's the opposite of that? It's a unifying force that, that brings uh, wealth back to a much broader cross swath of, of people. So basically, there's a wealth creation engine that now has to get harnessed to, you know, society itself, and um, and that I think is where impact investing is going to be the salvation, frankly, of sort of this venture capital model, as you say, because it's going to say, look, we're what we're really talking about is building the market environment in which companies can succeed, so, uh, and that means, you know, healthy communities, happy customers, all that good stuff that we talk about a lot. And that's what impact investing brings back to California. But it's you know it's clearly not happening in San Francisco. What makes you think it's going to happen in Sacramento or Pittsburgh or Boston or wherever? Let's say what what makes you think that you can export the positive without the negative, or is it that you just think that that bringing bringing the impact lens into the dialogue can be sufficiently powerful to balance it out. Yeah, I think I think it does both, right? So it's this idea of, and that's the very, I think at the heart of impact investing is, is uh, uh, it brings a recognition that there are positive externalities that we should be celebrating about what this uh, these innovations are bringing and what these new business models are bringing. Uh, there's a lot of benefits, right? So there, there's lots of benefits for consumers. Uh, there's lots of benefits uh, for society, more efficiencies, all, all, all the like. Uh, but there all also are these uh, negative externalities. And so I think what uh, the potential for impact investing is uh, to, to kind of inform all investing to be more cognizant of uh, not only the the benefits, but also the negative potential externalities of any kind of of investment or any kind of so. Uh, I mean, I think the the way to bring this full circle to, and to talk about the you know, large public pension funds of California and elsewhere that you guys are always so excited about is that that's where then the responsibility lies as well, right? Is with these asset owners bearing in mind that additional element, right? And that kind of goes back what to what I was saying as impact investing or sustainable investing needs to be a sort of holistic approach. You know, I talk a lot, um, when we're looking at deals, I talk a lot about this idea of emptying out of cities and the impact that that has and the need to look at, you know, things that, that create jobs and are generative as well as things that don't or are negative. And so this, this responsibility 
as capital allocators to think sort of holistically about what you're doing. But that is, and that again is something that because of how we think about investing historically has not been done, or at least since the 70s has kind of gotten lost. So there is, and maybe there is, you know, happening in California, there is an awakening that either is happening or needs to happen to sort of fix this system. I'm going to try an idea out on you guys that I that that is, is a little bit risky. But I've been trying to think about <clears throat> what, you know, displacement is the uh, outcome of what we're talking about. And, and people get forced out by high rents. They get forced out by all kinds of things. What's what's the what's the way to counteract that or to, to, to reverse that? And I've been thinking about this phrase of inclusive gentrification. And people will. The reason it's risky is that... Excuse me, as I, I, I don't think this is the problem with podcasts, unfortunately, is that you, you the, the audio doesn't convey eye rolls. But there was, as soon as you said that phrase, David, there was a collective eye roll in the room. Exactly. Okay. So the, the point here in an impact investing context is you do want a, uh, a driver of value, of increasing value. And as neighborhoods get cafes and galleries and and people fix up the old buildings and and, and there's yeah, a kind the, of hip the, urban the scene. The idea is you want to be able to rise everyone up instead Property of just values increase. Yes. Well, now idea, what happens is... Well, it's this idea of disruption or creative destruction, right? And that's what capitalism is. What you're trying to say is inclusive uh, destruction okay, or so, inclusive... Uh, so the neighborhood design. comes up, but the people get pushed out. But that's not a law of nature that the people have to no, get pushed out. That's a function of the arrangements that have been made. You're not the and only so, one to think of this I understand. Idea. I, if you Google inclusive gentrification, <laughs> you find there's a whole literature, which I've, I've done. So I've gotten kind of fascinated about this. And it turns out that there are a set of policies. Now, none of them have obviously gone mainstream. And there are, you know, none of them have are maybe all that effective, but there are about five or six things that people are doing that basically say, how do you invest people, how do you get the people who live in the neighborhood, who own shops and own businesses, go to school, whatnot, how do they get the fruits of this rising tide? And you can give them co-op shares in various kinds of mechanisms. You can you can have various kinds of community benefit agreements written out. You can have, um, you know, obviously the old guardway was you know rent control and whatnot. But you can also have new guardways where saying, look, there's a lot of wealth being created. Let's share that wealth so everybody has a stake in in perpetuating. Well, that's, how, does and that's... It, how, how does that jive though? I'm sorry. How does that jive though with uh, move fast and break things and that kind of? Tech culture. See, that's why, again, that's why I think tech culture kind of fell off the rails and something that we've been talking about a lot is this idea of like collaborative capitalism, that you in that you focus on, again, the sort of bringing up the many and working together instead of this like, some sort of dog eat dog, only one person can win kind of a model. And actually over the long term, that will result in better gains for all and maybe not the extreme wealth creation of the one, but the great wealth creation of the many and a handful of billionaires kind of thing. It's like there is a different economic model to think about for this kind of stuff. I think... Absolutely. And here's, here's, here's what I would argue. At those, the solutions to that... Pro the problem is created in California, as you said, but I bet the solution is also going to be created in California. And that because... like for, Just take, for example, universal basic income which is the notion that you should know, you know, hey, let's just share some of this wealth literally by writing people a check. And that had its day, and there's a bunch of experiments going on, and there's a bunch of it here, you know, champions of that. And I think 
that will turn out not to be the policy that turn you know is the most you know carries the day because it's just not it just doesn't really solve the problem in any significant way and but there but the backlash to that actually has generated lots of interesting thinking about how do you create systems that instead of driving towards exclusivity and inequality drive towards inclusiveness and 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 shared prosperity and that and that is a very interesting question and i would wager that the best you know experiments and innovations around that are going to you know, like it's, large, it's, largely come from it's California. The, it's the dreamers of the golden dream, right? It's this idea that California has always been like a utopia and a dystopia. That this is this is where the continent ends. So I think it's, you know, Joan Didion, you have to figure it out here. This is the last hope, right? Like it's here or nowhere kind well, of Well, that's, thing. yeah, that's the romantic notion of it. But there's very well, practical. There's, there's another problem. There's the, you know, your, your floating island city in the Pacific. Oh, like God, yeah. The, <laughs> Breaking off with the earthquake. But the, the other way to think about, you know, for example, immigration, right? I mean, that's, a, that's an example of could go exclusive division. It could go inclusive prosperity, right? And California went through a very, you know, bitter, you know, there was a another, yet one of these initiatives it passed. Actually, people voted for it, and it had to do with you know public benefits and and other things for for um, un, undocumented. It was quite a you know anti-immigration initiative that you know spelled basically the doom of the Republican Party in California. They had never really recovered from that. And 15 years later, you know, we're sanctuary state and sanctuary cities, and you know, understand that that immigration is the great strength. It keeps California young. It keeps California vibrant. There's a whole slew of entrepreneurs that are foreign-born entrepreneurs who who start businesses. California has integrated immigration into an economic engine that works. So it's an inclusive policy because it's pro-growth. It's not inclusive as a yeah, no, you know, welfare strategy. It's inclusive as a prosperity <coughs> strategy. I think that's a, that's an excellent example. I, I I don't disagree with you on the positive threads in California policy and approach. I just question whether or not this sort of you can have you know the 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 bright shining light without the dark shadow as well, or how that happens. Well, you can go within about you know. 12 blocks of, of, of downtown Oakland where we're here and you'll see a lot of dark shadows in California so there's not, it's not a, it's not all sunny sunny you know beaches and whatnot um, uh, but that that being said you know there's something going on here that I think is interesting for the rest of the country well I think there's a lot more to discover and to learn and I think we'll uh, continue to learn about the California model on in, every business trip you can <laughs> scam out here on every business trip you can you can make but also uh, on, on I think the, next on the, time we should do the New York model but people can learn more about the California model and the future of capitalism uh, and the future of impact investing uh, on the digital pages of impact alpha that's going to do it for this episode of returns on investment thank you David thank you Brian for coming out and thank you Imogen thank you Brian this was really fun being all in the same room. Yeah. Let's do it more. Yeah, all together <laughs> now. Uh, so special thanks also to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thank you, Isaac. Good to, good to see you, not just through a video chat, uh, but actually in, in person. Uh, this podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha. Be sure to sign up for Impact Alpha's newsletter, which is the most widely read daily newsletter in the impact investing world. Is that right, David? Absolutely. Uh, it's called The Brief. It provides daily news and actionable intelligence for the growing number of people working to build an inclusive, resilient, and prosperous future in California and beyond. 
from California. I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Returns on Investment. Mm-hmm.